Hi, I'm Janet O'Shea. I am the author of the book Risk Failure Play, What Dance Reveals About Martial Arts Training, um, which was published by Oxford University Press, and it just came out in November of 2018. I'm in conversation with Carla Samoth. Congratulations. Um, I am Carla Samoth, and my memoir and essays, One Day on the Gold Line, will come out on July 18th, 2019, and it's being published by Black Rose Writing. So, um, Carla, I'm really excited to be talking to you today. Um, I think one of the things that really interested me in having this conversation is that we're both using memoir, um, but we're using memoir in pretty unconventional ways. Um, so I was wondering if you'd be interested in kind of talking about that, like how working with memoir, but writing in an essay format, um, what that was like for you, um, what kinds of issues it brought up, that kind of thing. Okay. Um, yes, I originally had thought about um, writing. I had originally thought about writing this book, I, the idea had been suggested years ago to work on the memoir because it was a little intimidating to me to write a book-length memoir. And I had written and published a number of essays and an author suggested to me that I consider a memoir and essays and showed me some examples. And later on when my son was reading House on Mango Street, and I, I can't um, pretend that I was able to duplicate what Sandra Cisneros did at all. But he was really excited about the way she wrote her book in vignettes. I said, Mom, this, this would be a great way for you to tell your story. Um, that was my son when he was like 12, who's always been a big supporter of my writing, uh, which is a good thing because I write quite a bit about him. Uh, so I originally, I, I waited until my son left home until I was really able to focus in a big way on uh, writing a book. And I went back and got my MFA. And the first um, and earlier discussions I had heard that writing, for sure, writing an essay collection is harder to publish than writing a book length memoir. But what I ended up being suggested, what ended up being suggested to me by a mentor was to do um, linked essays of different length and also, um, not necessarily all in the same style. So some are, there's a one or two that are in second person. Um, some are more thematic. Some are very narrative, almost like a chapter. And, um, but as a whole, they form a story arc. And um, I found that that really worked well for me. And the other thing is that I teach creative writing. And one of the things that I've learned is that um, when writing about difficult experiences, when writing about trauma, trauma creates fractures in memory. And oftentimes it's much easier for writers to be able to access those memories and write them in alternative forms. Now, some people may write them in alternative forms, um, list all different kinds of essay forms that are um, unconventional, and then put them later into a more conventional format. Um, but I found that for the purpose of my writing that it really did work well to be able to use some of those alternative forms in my work. So I, I kind of evolved to the way it was written, you know, knowing that I was working on a memoir and essay and then getting the support to do not exactly a full-on book of collage, 
Um, but a book of linked essays that form a story, but that are told in different, in, in different structures at times. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Does that that jive with what you read? (laughs) Yes, yes, it definitely. I mean, and I think that's what was kind of interesting to, to me, um, you know, as somebody who uses memoir in the interest of like what I'm calling light touch cultural theory, um, like memoir is a way of like opening out to these questions and like, Oh, well, well, what if we look at, take this experience and then it could open up to this kind of speculation or these kinds of um, observations and I think, yeah, it was interesting reading um, your book, the way um, some of it, like some of the chapters are kind of a conventional memoir sort of structure when you're talking about like your experiences with pregnancy, for example, mm-hmm. that it proceeds right. in a fashion. And then um, at other points in time, it takes a real turn. And then we're, you know, back to your experience in Seattle. So it kind of like, there's this movement in time and out of time, which is very interesting. Right, right. Um, yeah, I also um, was interested in your approach to skipping over to um, in risk failure play. I found that really interesting that you started out from the get go saying this was not going to be a traditional martial arts memoir. Um, and I kind of wanted to hear a little bit more about how you came to that idea. And how you know, I did I, I love the way it, it did address like cultural theory, you know, social, socioeconomic politics, uh, um, class issues, um, what's going on now in terms of the world and, um, some bigger issues, but I was interested in how you sort of what brought you into the memoir initially. And then what motivated you to do that approach? Um, that you did in your memoir. Yeah. I'm, you know, it's interesting. I think there were a couple of factors there because, you know, as, as you read, like I started out, there was a point at which I was like, Oh, I'm going to write a martial arts memoir and martial arts memoirs are such a thing. Like when so often when people train in martial arts and then write about it, they end up writing a memoir rather than a collection of essays or sort of cultural investigation or, you know, that kind of thing or kind of life-based fiction. And so there, there really is this convention of like, okay, you put yourself through the paces and then you write this memoir. And I think for me, there were two things, um, one kind of um, a, a conceptual and then one kind of personal, which was the martial arts memoirs always lead up to the fight. It's so often a person like me, you know, who comes in, as you know, relatively outside the practice, and then kind of falls in love with it, and um, throws himself into the rigors, and and then it, it, the person goes through these trainings, and it leads up, you know, to to the big fight at the end, and the the big fight, um, we have a lot of suspense leading up to that, and how is it going to go? And I've read memoirs where it's both like it's successful, and then other ones where the person is like, I I lost the fight, but it was amazing, or I lost the fight, and that showed me this thing. And then I kind of realized at a certain point, I was like, well, the training for the one big fight or the one not so big fight, the one amateur fight that to me is a big deal, wouldn't right. really show me that much, you know? I mean, it would be interesting. Um, and it would it would be an interesting thing to experience, but it was like, but it, would it really get at what I'm trying to get at here? And and that's where I kind of realized, like, no, actually, I'm interested in training. Um, yes. And so I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting. Um, and then meanwhile, while I'd sort of 
it, you know, sort of embarked on writing this, I ended up getting um, kind of seriously injured in a bicycle accident. Mm. And, and I had been thinking, oh, okay, well, maybe I won't do a fight, but maybe I'll build up to taking my Muay Thai test because that's quite rigorous. And it's, it's a bit like a competition fight where you really get knocked around a lot and you really have mm. to, there's a lot of like conditioning that goes into it. And I was like, okay, then I got really injured and was kind of uh, bedridden for a couple of months. And I was like, okay, obviously I'm not doing that. And then there was this other thing that I realized where I was like, there's actually not much that's really interesting about me in relation to martial arts. Like I'm just this ordinary person um, who embarked on this experience. And like, I'm neither like a pro fighter, you know, um, it wouldn't be like that sort of athlete's autobiography, but also like, I didn't really start out as like a timid person who this changed my life, you know? Right. Right. (laughs) So it was like, um, I've always been a little scrappy and I've always been kind of, you know, fairly courageous and adventurous and, you know, but not, not sort of somebody who was so much so that I'd be like, you know, an Olympian or something. So it was this realization of like, well, there's nothing terribly interesting about me in relation to that. But then I realized, oh, but that's the point. Like, that is what's interesting is that I'm just a, you know, I'm just a, a regular person, um, embarking on this experience and you know it wasn't like earth shattering like it's not like oh this completely changed my life but it did transform me in in like this multiplicity of ways so that's where like that thing of like oh yeah okay so then opening out to these questions or opening out to these social conditions like it's all these sort of small transformations that sparks these insights you know rather than like the one big transformation yeah, which actually I think is really is really interesting, and um, and you really went deep in terms of examining those questions. Of course, I had I was I was really curious. Like, first of all, I was able to tell that you were the kind of person that this would not be a total surprise to your family or community. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I didn't think like, oh my god, you know, because in another life. Um, I was also very, I, I, I don't know, my athletic ability peaked in sixth grade, but apparently before sixth grade, I was like the best girl athlete. And we used to do a lot of pickup football games and uh, tackle football in our neighborhood. And we, we lived in a really rough neighborhood. And then we moved to essentially the suburbs from Seattle. And it was a huge shock. And I became the last picked instead of the first picked. I don't know what happened, but I remained someone who did a lot of non- traditional like really pushed you know the one who wanted to take this is no big deal I'm a little bit older than you but back then like okay I'm going to take auto mechanics instead of whatever it was you were supposed to take um you know always you know had to climb the biggest mountain I grew up in Seattle and um you know and eventually played rugby in well first of all I was on the first women's all all women's backcountry trail crew um, with the National Park Service in Sequoia and Kings Canyon and then I I played rugby in school, but by then I was such a, and that was also a little bit unusual back then. That would have been not to date myself, but like 1979, but I was not very good. I was a hooker. (laughs) It's a miracle that I didn't um, get hurt um, because I I wasn't very good, but I, I was really interested in the challenge of it. And then years later, um, like when I was in my 50s, they started a rugby team in Pasadena and the coach asked me to participate um, because he, he knew my son um, and he didn't know what a bad athlete I was. He just knew I had, had played rugby one season. <laughs> and um, I remember um, 
you know, I, I decided I would do a story about it. I decided I would write about, you know, um, going back to playing rugby and had some really stupid title, like, can you teach an old hooker new tricks or something? Um, so I, um, I intended to play with them, but I couldn't even stay up late enough. You know, they practice like from eight to 10 and then they'd go out drinking afterwards. And, you know, I, I ended up writing the story and concluding that I should take a bone density test instead of playing with them. And, um, but I remember, honestly, and this is kind of really deviating from the what I question I'm getting back to you. I started asking you a question and talking about myself. How interesting. Um, but um, I, at that time in my life, my son was struggling. Uh, there were a lot of things going on. And my son was struggling with addiction. And I remember thinking, if I can do this, if I can play rugby, then maybe I can face maybe I can deal with these issues I'm dealing with, like going to the hospital and hearing that my son could die, you know, somehow if I could just push myself that much harder. Um, and I did interview a number of women and I saw a short film that someone made inter about the women who were playing rugby. And there were women who unlike um, you or me, we, who, who it was really counterintuitive to something they would do and who said that it really changed their lives in a big way. So that, that was pretty interesting. But um, I guess I, now that I've, I've given that long speech about my, my, my rugby, I, and I never, um, that was the end of my rugby career. Um, so I, I was interested, even though it seemed not that unusual for you to want to try martial arts. I was interested in, you talked about um, being in dance before, about dancing before and how that led into martial arts and how you came upon, um, like what time in your life did you decide this is something I want to focus on? And did you decide to focus on it? And then you decide, then you began to think about a book looking at the bigger issues. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, first of all, just to say, like, I, I really enjoyed that part of your book where you talk about doing the being on the backwoods um, conservation corps team, and then like that whole interesting contrast of the sort of like, urban scrappy girl, and then moving to the suburbs, and then the sort of being out in nature and that requiring a different kind of toughness. So I found that whole um, a sort of uh, contrast to be super interesting. Um, but in relation to the question, yeah, about like, right, like I think it, nobody who knows me was surprised by this at all, um, that I would just, at, you know, in midlife, like launch myself into like full contact martial arts or, you know, high contact <laughs> martial arts practice. Everyone's like, yeah, you know, whatever. Um, but, but at the same time, I like people who I've met more recently, um, you know, like writers I've met more recently stuff were like, oh, from the way you talk about it, I've assu I assumed you had just been doing martial arts from childhood. And, you know, in fact, that is, was not true at all. Um, and, uh, you know, like you, um, I was always a scrappy, tough kid, but um, I wasn't conventionally athletic. So I was, I was a swimmer, you know, in mm. middle school and high school. Um, you know, I, I, tried rock climbing when I was at a Girl Scout camp and I really loved it, but I didn't really have an opportunity to pursue it. Um, and so dance was, was in some ways um, perfect for me in terms of um, it being a space for somebody who is uh, physically inclined, but not conventionally athletic. Um, but I also didn't really find my place in dance. I came in 
you know, relatively late because I was mm-hmm. doing Western concert dance. So I was doing actually ballet and I was like, I started at like 13 and oh, wow. too late. Right. Yeah. That's old. No, that's, old, that's right? beautiful. Yeah, but that says something about you that you were like, which I can identify with that. You're like, okay, I'm going to do this even though I'm 13 and the other one started when they were two. Good for you. Totally. And it, and then it like, that just sort of carries over, I guess, where I was like, yeah, sure. I'll, you know, I'll go like do some kickboxing, even though I'm starting at, you know, 40. Um, and uh, you know, I'm training with a bunch of 20 year old boys. Like <laughs> there's a commonality there. I never thought about that before, but it is an interesting commonality that I'm just like, yeah, to hell with it. I'll do it. Um, so, you know, then I, I kind of wound my way around to, I, d- I did a little bit of modern dance and then I finally kind of found my place, interestingly enough, in um, a South Indian classical dance form called Bharatanatyam. Oh. Um, and, and that was sort of my uh, passion for a long time. And, and I had always had this thing about I wanted to study martial arts. And I think a lot of it just frankly was like, I grew up in the 1970s. Bruce Lee was this incredible icon. Um, I wanted to... I wanted to train martial arts and I kind of had this thing of like, you know, um, looking for like the martial art where I I would find, like I was thinking about it as magic, Mm. um, not not in some weird like orientalist hocus pocus kind of way, finding that the, the, the sort of nuance and finding what is like surprising in movement. Um, finding what's like, I think I talk about this a little bit in the book in terms of thinking about magic as sleight of hand. Yes. I started training in, um, I, I wanted to train in Jeet Kune Do when I moved to San Francisco in the 90s, and I couldn't find it. This was in the days before the internet, so I don't know, maybe <laughs> Jeet Kune Do, Bruce Lee style, but I didn't find it. And then I uh, contacted a Wing Chun Kung Fu school, uh, and I, I called them, and they the, the guy who answered the phone was like, well, we don't train women here. Oh, wow. That would, that probably got you going right there. <laughs> I know, right? And it was, and it's amazing to think that, that, that was like, you know, this wasn't like, you know, 1947 when this mm-hmm. happened. This was like, you know, like in the early nineties, I mean, it was extraordinary. Um, but then I found a traditional Kung Fu school and I did that for a while, but you know, I, I never really found that, that sense of magic. You know, I, I did that for about, uh, I guess about nine months. Um, and I never really, it was a lot of like conditioning exercises and learning forms. Um, and then I broke my toe in a sparring match and I was dancing a lot at the time. So I was like, okay, I can't really, I can't really do this and pursue a, a dance career, you know? Um, so I stopped and then I, I did do some Wing Chun. Finally, I found a guy who trained at the school that wouldn't train me. Um, and he trained me and my friends in, in my friend's backyard, which was amazing. And I did that. I did that for a while, and and I really enjoyed it. But and then I, I stopped training when I moved to England, and you know that was sort of that. And what got me back into martial arts was interestingly that when my daughter was born, she was born by C-section, and that was a you know less than positive experience in many right. ways. But what was really hard was being was feeling physically disempowered. Mm, I remember uh, that. I had a C-section too. Oh, yeah. yeah. An emergency C-section too. Yeah. 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 Um, and it's, um, you know, that thing Pilates instructors say that like all your strength is in your core. Like who knew mm-hmm. it's actually true, right? Yes. But, yeah. And it's, it's a scary thing. I think particularly if you are a physically capable person to, to feel your, your physical strength and your power taken away. 
at a, at a moment when you have to, you know, care for this very vulnerable being. Yeah. And, yeah. It's, that's really un, unsettling. It's something that people don't talk about very much. Um, right. You know, with like the prevalence of, of C-sections. And I think, you know, I think there are a lot of women who maybe don't feel super empowered anyway. So it's painful, but it's not the sense of like, oh my God, I was a powerful person and now I'm not, you know? Right. So that, that the effect of that carried over to this, like really feeling like I, I sort of doubted my, my strength and my power in the world. And my partner actually said to me, at a certain point, I mean, my daughter was like two at this point. He was like, I think you need to go back to fight school. Oh, wow. And I was like, yeah, I think I do. And then I, you know, I was like, oh, wow, UCLA offers a Jeet Kune Do class. How, what a wonderful coincidence, you know, that like, you know, cause he was just basically like, just go, go, go do any martial art, get your fight on and you'll realize you're fine. And great. yeah. And in fact, you know, so it was meant to be just this experience of just like, yeah, get myself back in there and, you know, realize that I, I still got it. And in fact, it was, you know, I, it was like, I went into the first class and I just completely fell in love mm. and I found that magic. I found the magic that I had been looking for all those years. So that was like a really amazing kind of outcome that it was like this sort of difficult experience, but then led into like this, wow, I really, I found what I was looking for, like, you know, 20 years ago when I first started this process. So and then from there on, that is the type of um, fight and martial arts that you you stayed with after that. Yeah, it started with Jeet Kune Do, um, and uh, the system that I was uh, training in, I'm training in, is is called Progressive Jeet Kune Do, which means it's like t- taking Bruce Lee's um, ethos of like take what is useful, leave what is useless, make it your own. Um, so it opens right. up to these other martial arts, um, you know, like kickboxing, like Brazilian jiu-jitsu, um, brings in a lot of Filipino martial arts. So I ended up training kind of in all of those. Well, yeah, I saw that in your book. You really, I, your training seemed really comprehensive. And also that there was creativity in it, um, which makes sense in how you're describing this, you know, um, of, of kind of taking what's there and, and making it your own kind of, does that, does that sound right? Yes. Yes, definitely. Definitely. And I think that's probably where it kind of fits with the writing and fits with the the dancing and maybe even is making space for an older practitioner where it's like, I'm not trying to put myself into a kind of fit fit a peg into a hole like or fit a kind of might fit myself onto a bookshelf kind of it's like it's a system that you is set up to say like do your research inquire practice train and figure out how you're going to put all this together yeah I love that I mean I I love that and you really um unpack that so that um the reader can understand the complexity of it and that was what was really interesting because there was an up-close look at your own experience, but at the same time set in terms of what was going on culturally and politically and, and economically in the country and how that fit and looking at different systems and why is it in some other countries um, it, it's viewed so different, physical play is viewed so differently. I mean, that, that was fascinating too. Um, I, I found the part, there was this one part that I thought that made so much sense to me, um, I think around page 70 or 71 where you're talking about vulnerability you know and it was a really i i really totally got um your um 
what you're writing about how vulnerability um, did not have to be viewed as an inferior state to be avoided. Um, and um, ironically, I had this whole discussion with my son. I can't remember if I had that in the book or not. But when he was get, getting trained to have a bar mitzvah, and it was kind of an unconventional bar mitzvah, um, he wasn't in Hebrew school leading up to that. He decided kind of fairly last minute that he wanted to do it and had to sort of jumpstart the studying. And our blended family had unblended, and there was lots, lots of personal upheaval going on. He had gone through a lot in terms of identity, both being biracial and also being um, the son of a queer woman. And then, uh, you know, and like when, he's, when he was very young, being very excited to tell the world that he was going to have another mom and a sister and, and really being stepped on because it was during the real heavy cultural wars um, around um, gay marriage and that. I don't know if you're familiar, like with Bar Mitzvah, they... You know, they have these really strange uh, Torah passages, which can either be really, like, just brutal or kind of tedious, like doing inventory or something, like, of grains, you know. But he had a really, his Torah, and so whatever your Torah portion falls upon, you have to interpret it. Like, you have to teach the congregation, and that's you becoming an adult. Cause you, so, um, in his case, it was um, what to do if your wife is unfaithful. And, um, oh. and there, I know it's like, like there, and there was some primitive thing where you throw her in the water, she drowns and she's not unfit, you know? But so the rabbi like took this and said, so Gabriel, this is really about, um, trust and vulnerability. And somehow he ended up writing a sermon about, um, Bernie Madoff, you know, someone who if people had become vulnerable because they trusted him because they were Jewish. <laughs> and he also wrote about teen prostitutes and their trust being broken. And he read poetry. So it was a great bar mitzvah. It was mostly like a lot of the, con the, the congregation there that day were largely African-American and Latino. And his friends from school were saying, I want a bro mitzvah. <laughs> so, but what I was going to say is we had an interesting discussion when we were, when we were kind of talking about this idea of vulnerability. And I was sort of presenting it as something that could be negative because I was saying to my son, you know, we really give our hearts away very easily. Um, and that, you know, maybe we shouldn't. And then my son turned to me out of the mouths of babes and said something like, but mom, if you don't open up your heart, you'll miss out on a lot in the world. <laughs> Still kind of makes me tear up to say it <laughs> because it, it was so profound and, really interesting because he had already lost a lot at that point. Um, and, uh, yeah, I have to keep remembering that. I'm, um, I'm glad I told the story, not just because parents love to talk about their kids, but, um, kind of reminds me to keep that in mind. Um, but your discussion of vulnerability, um, and the context, uh, when you talk about it, you're talking about another author, a researcher about it being tied to receptivity and responsiveness. And, not necessarily you don't you really unpack that whole concept of vulnerability i don't know if you want to talk a little bit more about that i know we're, we're getting close to the end but i i wanted to hear because you talk about trust in regard in related to vulnerability as well yeah yeah well i think I, i'm really glad you mentioned that about vulnerability because when i was um reading your book i kept thinking like oh that's one of the things that we have in common is thinking about vulnerability you know and thinking about like what vulnerability um, 
opens up and precludes, um, or not really precludes, but what it, it exposes us to and where, where's the appropriate line, you know, but also like, you know, reading the piece for which your book is named uh, one day on the gold line, which I, I, I found to be, you know, one of the most riveting, um, sections of your book, but also, you know, it's devastating because you're, you know, about being on the receiving end of this, you know, pretty uh, horrific police brutality, even on the scale of things like, you know, police brutality gets a lot worse, but it's still, you describe it so vividly and like this cop breaking your nose when you just, because your Metro pass is stuck between your wallet and (laughs) it's between your wallet and your keys, or I can't remember where. Right. Right. And like, I think that's a perfect example of um, one of the things that I was trying to get at in, in the, but in the chapter on vulnerability where like, if we pay attention to our experiences of vulnerability, they can be hugely generative um, in terms of enabling compassion and empathy and understanding across these different life experiences. Because, you know, I saw you do that so clearly when you were like, if this could happen to me um, as a middle-class you know, kind of white ethnic uh, PR firm, you know, uh, businesswoman getting on the metro, like what, what would it be like for my son, a young African-American man? Like, and, and how, how easily it could have, it could have been so much worse. And then, you know, kind of um, opening out from that realization. And I think, you know, the flip side of it, like something that I didn't really talk in about, I don't think I talked about this in the book, but like, there's there were these series of studies um and the headline that came out about them was like uh, believing in a just world can make you a bad person um where basically like a lot of victim blaming comes about because people think that the world is a fair place and we we see that a lot like with police brutality where you know you get these people like white people who live in the suburbs saying things like oh but the police would never have done that this kid must have done something wrong. Yeah. And I heard that a lot, by the way. Yeah. But um, yeah, I mean, just to interject, I was actually working on a piece at the time called Moving South about how differently my son was being treated as he got older. And um, we moved to a a less diverse area and my fears. And so I thought the story was going to be his experience. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's extraordinary. The whole like life imitates art, art imitates life kind of thing that happens um, with these things. Um, but yeah, I think I thought it was interesting, right. How like that, that awareness, like obviously, you know, some of these things I'm writing about are, you know, particularly like in the, in the book, I've really focused on like my experiences with sort of consensual risk, um, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and that kind of thing. Um, but I think even when it's when we've been exposed to risk, not consensually, if we can think about it, and it and that is, you know, situations that are violent because they're not consensual. Like if there is a way in which it's not just like sort of t- you know making sunshine where there's rain or turning adversity into you know um, wisdom, but it's more that thing of like if we can really attend to that and we can reflect on it, it can it can really open up that kind of a a deeper ethics, you know, because we do live in a world that is characterized by a great deal of inequality and injustice. And, 
um, some of that is really extreme at this particular moment. So it's it like, yes, it know. is. And I thought about that a lot just to say, because I'm Jewish and it's funny that my mother always says, Oh, when they ask what ethnicity, because people assume that I'm one of like about 10 to, you know, whether, you know, middle Eastern or, you know, Eastern European, probably originally from the middle East. Um, and, um, and it's hard to tell with Jew. I always said it's really hard to tell the final the history with Jewish people and African Americans because of our own history, because of what's happened in our lives. It's hard to tell where what countries we originally we originated from by the very nature of what has happened to us. Um, but I have written quite a bit about how people treat you when you look foreign, or you look like, in particular, a foreign look that they've been conditioned to have suspicions about like say very middle Eastern as I do. Um, so um, I had been thinking about those issues an awful lot um, and had kind of written about them. I wrote about them in a poem, not in the book called secondary inspections. Um, but um, I digress <laughs> where we were talking about vulnerability. Um, capture that thread. Talking about that idea that vulnerability isn't weakness. It's, and it's not necessarily a state to be avoided, it can actually be a source, attending to our vulnerability and recognizing the vulnerabilities of others can be a source of strength. Yes. Um, and so you know what, I think that's actually really, I'm, I'm so glad you mentioned that because in a way, that's kind of what memoir is all about, right? It's like making ourselves vulnerable not simply to air out our dirty laundry for the world or to like be like, this is all about me and my experience, but instead to make ourselves intentionally vulnerable so that we can open up a world for readers and, and generate empathy in a way. Right. Now that you say that, and that in itself does require a certain amount of trust that you're going to be okay with being vulnerable, that vulnerability doesn't equal annihilation. Yes. Yeah, so it is a little bit like that thing in this in a sparring match of like, you know, having that trust of like the person or the circumstances or being able to trust something enough to just say, yeah, I'm going to make myself vulnerable and see what happens. And I think memoir is, yeah, exactly that, that kind of thing saying, okay, yes, I'll do it. I'll make myself vulnerable. And, you know, as you say, it doesn't have to equal annihilation or devastation <laughs> or <laughs> manipulation. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting experience because the first times that I've had essay that I've published essays that really lay a lot bare, I've, I've actually felt a sense of empowerment after it was out. Certain types of essays that I've written have engendered more, um, when they've been online, more response from readers, sometimes very aggressive. So when I wrote One Day on the Gold Line, I heard from all different kinds of people. And um, when I've written about race or religion, because I wrote about one issue of like racial profiling in South Pasadena, I got a bunch of people writing saying, oh, those kids must have been up to no good. And then others writing saying, welcome to our world who are, who are black. But overall, and I know we're about out of time, overall, that willingness to that, that desire to understand, I think it. I think it's a vulnerability, but it also requires a level of willing to be really self-examining, to really like have some agency 
and be willing to look at yourself as a multidimensional person that hopefully you look at your other characters, the other people in your story. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think actually that is a really good way to conclude because I think that idea about reflection, I mean, that's what memoir is all about, you know, and I saw that a lot in your in your book about those moments of taking stock, you know, and being self-reflective and, you know, in, in different kinds of ways, that's kind of almost what I'm advocating for in Risk Failure Play. So it's I super saw that. interesting to see that, to see that, like, it's, again, that sort of, like, life and writing and the physical practice all are kind of amplifying each other or echoing each other. And I feel like we could keep talking for, like, another 45 minutes, but, you yeah. know, we only have so much time. So thank you so much. I really loved reading One Day on the Gold Line. Just to say, I, I felt the same way about your book, and I was sort of, they're so different, and yet at the same time, I felt like there was so much commonality. I, there was so much, and I really loved the contrast, the two books. Yes, exactly. Kindred projects in some ways. So thank you so much, and I've really enjoyed our conversation. Me too. We'll have to continue it offline. <laughs>